I mean, are we really working together, those of us are true believers, to be in harmony with everybody else? And that's never going to happen. I understand. I've gone through the arguments for years. The question is, are we willing to change when the error is found? Are we looking for the error? Welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, your Word is pure, it's holy, it's true. You spent the largest chapter in the Bible giving praise to your holy word. Why? Because it's it's who you are. We're a, a planet, a race of liars. You never lie. You've never lied. You never will lie. You only speak the truth. It's so important. It's what trust is built on. Faith is built on. We have something to build our faith like the world doesn't know. It's, it's the purity, the consistency, the honesty of a God who's as, as big in character as he is in place and presence. I pray, Lord, that you would take your holy word even now as I quote it and just place it within the hearts of your people and for the lost, that they might see Jesus and come to a saving knowledge of his saving work. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is uh, episode two in our present series, Cultural Christianity. And I'm going to begin with this idea that there is great irony in life. And it's this uh, inability to see our own state of being. For this lesson, let us consider the condition of a spoiled brat to begin with. You know, there's an old Andy Griffith, if you ever watched those shows, and a new boy uh, comes to town, moves to town, and attempts to corrupt Opie, um, Andy's son, with, uh, with his bratty ways. He has his father wrapped around his finger, until at last, in a fit of anger, he tells the sheriff, yelling, you know, and that his father will go to jail so that he can get his impounded bike back. Only then, you know, his father wakes up to the reality that his son is becoming mean and is already selfish beyond measure. I mean, he just, you, know, you see it in his face, and he takes him behind the shed and teaches him a little lesson in discipline. Um, this lesson is around spoiled brats uh, in the church. And I, not by my word, but by God's holy word that we're going to look at. But I want to say this, that spoiled brats don't just come from nowhere. They come from the same place they always come from. And that's the same way that Lucifer fell in, the, in, when, in his place from this exalted place as an angel. 
that we can't even, we don't even know just how powerful angels are and knowledgeable and wise and all that God has given them. And here he is in this highly exalted position of an as an angel and he falls through the error of pride and it's so blinding if you ask yourself how could someone with so much wisdom and understanding that I mean we're just complete idiots compared to the holy angels and and he thinks that he can overcome God overcome the one who is outside of time he's made time he's eternal Everything has come from him. He's everywhere present at the same time. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. This God cannot be overcome by something created in space and time. It's ridiculous. And so I'm asking, you know, how blinding is this thing that we call pride? I'm not just looking at it, but we're going to talk a little bit about it. It's impossible to wrap our minds around all of these kinds of concepts, but it's important to dwell on them, to think about it. Why? Because it's in the Word. To all my listeners, are you able to step back far enough away from your personal traditions in order to objectively view them and your present spiritual condition? I'm just asking, uh, as I asked myself, I just came out of three weeks of just repeated times of confessing sin, being transparent with myself and with God as much as by the grace of God I can be. It's necessary to go through those times. The Puritans did it. We need to do it. I'm asking you to kind of do it here. By by the word traditions, by the way, I mean core beliefs that may or may not be biblical. They can be extra biblical. That is to say, they seem biblical, but upon a closer look, they're not. They, they go beyond Scripture. So how can we know whether or not we are following biblical or non-biblical beliefs? The answer is simple. God never changes his mind, nor contradicts himself. What was written for the first century Christians is also written for us today. And the whole Old Testament. Nothing changes. Now God changes the way he does things, obviously, from one the Old Covenant to the New Covenant for purposes, but he's always the same, and he's always about the same ultimate purpose. I'm not talking about those kinds of changes. I'm talking about completely changing direction. God does not do this, never done this, never will. Changes, however, do occur, and we can become aware of them. For instance, 60 years ago in the American culture, Marriage was held in much higher esteem than it is today. I remember the 60s. I remember when the things changed, started to really change. Now, man, this is a center. I understand that. But cultures ebb and flow. They decline. Just read Judges 1 and 2 if you think what I'm saying is off because it's right there. Even so, that culture has affected to some degree the present-day church, the one from 60 years ago. I'm, I'm using generalities, and I'm, I'm painting with broad strokes, Please don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to speak to all people in all churches all over. I'm not, not doing that. I'm just speaking generally. 60 years ago, before that, a door, 60 years before that, there was a door that was open to apostolic gifts that caused a split in the church. And for years, uh, eventually, a mindset uh, alteration that alienated anyone who does not agree with such beliefs. Sixty years before that, 
there were changes on how men looked at the Word of God. You know, there's, there's higher and lower criticism. Higher criticism just tore into God's Word like it wasn't what it is. And so the fight for truth continues in each age with a general dumbing down of the gospel integrity within the ranks of Orthodox Christianity. It's just, if you study history, I mean, this, these things are unavoidable. You may not see them if you're not reading, if you don't, see, if you don't understand the history behind it, but that's, that's the way it is. To all my listeners, the aforementioned attacks on the integrity of the Christian faith, and there have been many more, are far more serious than most people realize. I speak largely to the West, even though many parts around the world are, are affected by these things as well. How do these things take place? Well, there are numerous ways that the enemy of our souls makes inroads into the church and destroys its integrity. This episode will deal with only one. We will view two portions of scripture, which on the surface appear to be in contradiction with each other. But in reality, they're not, of course. When a student of God's word notices such contradictions, he should always work to resolve them knowing that God never contradicts himself. You know, the problem is always with us. What seems to be a contradiction to us will always turn out, when investigated properly, to be a great source of light. Our first scripture for consideration is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. In, uh, in this, we, I'm going to call this the enrichment of, at Corinth. And uh, beginning at verse 4, it says this, I thank my God always, concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you are enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, just as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you eagerly await the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. Now, there's very, very obvious facts here that, that come to light, which you can't ignore. They're just plainly written. Number one, God is to be thanked because, uh, uh, because all the enrichment is from him. That's why we're thanking God. That's why Paul was thanking God. Number two, Corinth lacked nothing. Uh, if you, if you, if you're just reading the scripture, if it's not in front of you, just I just read it. I hope you can remember it. Um, three, the Corinthian church eagerly awaited confirmation of their blamelessness on the day of Christ. Four, God is faithful, and number five, God does the calling. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son. So there's, they're lacking nothing. God gets all the credit. The, the church is eagerly awaiting to be confirmed blameless. God is faithful and God did the calling. In all this opening text, God gets all the glory and there is no mention of the church's responsibility. In the next paragraph, however, Paul raises the matter of division and the church's need of God's wisdom, that is, wisdom imparted by God, which seems to contradict what he previously stated about their enrichment. Now, he never mentioned them as being perfect, 
but he did mention blameless. They would be seen as blameless. As an example, let's look at verse 10. And I'm quoting, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. We all think we're right about our beliefs as Christians. Let's, let's just put that down on paper that, or in our, in our minds. That that's pretty much the way we are, all of us. If not, we wouldn't hold them. I, might, I believe that's sound reasoning for normal people. You, we believe we're right, and therefore we hold on to what we believe. Furthermore, to change our minds about what we believe takes an intercession by God. For myself, as an example, I was saved watching Billy Graham on TV. Following my conversion for six years, I did not know a born-again believer, but continued within a mainline denomination with no knowledge that, in reality, it was a cult. Only after, in my late teens, having fallen into sin and consequently broken in my trespass, was I brought to the cross of Christ again in contrition and sorrow, Uh, were my eyes not only open to my personal errors, but also that of the church I had been attending. All of that just came to light when I was contrite over my sin. It took something serious in my life for me to realize that where I had been was in a very bad place, and I'm talking about the church. If you are in a church, or should I say a school of higher learning, that is, it concentrates on learning as opposed to concentrating on prayer. If that's the case, please take one step back. Okay, We always need to take these step backs anyway, but I'm I'm just making a point that there are times, there are places, there are things that are done in different churches, and it depends on what kind of prayer it is. I mean, if it's good and, you know, holy prayer, or it's not. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3... Paul declares Corinth to be a church of children and walking in the flesh. And there's different things that have to be looked at, and I put that in there about prayer because nothing's more eye-opening than a person who prays well. Um, But this condition that we're going to look through in 1 Corinthians 3 is where I get this title, Rich Kids, beginning in verse 1. And I'm going to read the passage, the chapter, and then we'll come back through it. Quote, and I, brothers and sisters, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but only as fleshly, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to consume it. But even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like ordinary people? For when one person says, I am with Paul, and another, I am with Apollos, are you not ordinary people? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos warded, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God 
who causes the growth. I'm going to take one intermission in reading this just to say that on one occasion, when our Lord was teaching his 12 disciples about humility, we read this, quote, The apostle said to the Lord, this is from Luke 17, 5 through 10, The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted into the, in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat, properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, Quote, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. End quote. From Luke 17, 5 to 10. Faith in that passage is closely attached to humility. The humble know his place. That is, he is nothing before Almighty God. The proud, and even a proud Christian, is not behaving like a Christian at all. I continue in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8. Now the one who plants and the one who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, stubble, each one's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. Even now, I get chills reading this. Verse 14, if anyone's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet only so as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy that person, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Take care that no one deceives himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness in the sight of God. For it is written, quoting from the Old Testament, he is the one who catches the wise by their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are useless. So then no one is to be boasting in people. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. End quote. What then is the light we're looking for in the apparent contradiction between the opening chapter to the Corinthians and the criticisms of them by the Apostle Paul that follow. When Paul tells us that they are rich 
and increased in knowledge and all gifts. He is referring to their condition as they have been saved, placed into the body of Christ, become part of his church, his body. God imparts gifts to all who believe in him. What we do with those gifts can be something quite different from the potential that is ours. Our potential exists in the arena of God's grace and gifts. The actuation of those gifts result in our living out our new life by faith. Faith, as already taught by our Lord, is in direct proportion to our humility. And that goes back to that portion I read from Luke. Faith is always in direct proportion to our humility. Many references could be given to prove that. The centurion, the Syrophoenician woman. The proud person lives on in the flesh, does not properly mature, does not build the church with gold, silver, and precious stone, but with that which is lost when burned instead of purified, the wood, the hay, and the stubble. Paul begins to bring those at Corinth into reality when he says, quote, And I, brothers and sisters, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but only as fleshly, as to infants in Christ. What a, what a thing to say. I mean, that's not, that doesn't, not a good way to make friends and, and uh, influence people. But, or is it? An infant is synonymous in this text with a fleshly man. The alternative is to spiritual as spiritual is to humble. The, the devil was lifted, as I've already said, with pride, and it was that pride that was his undoing. So it is with us. Eve bought the lie. In the day you eat the fruit, the forbidden fruit, when disobeying God, you will be as God. I mean, he didn't say it all. He, he left out a big piece of that. He left out one little fact. We would actually think ourselves to be God. Well, you'll be as God. No, you're going to think you're God. But we would still be the infinitesimally small people that we were when we were created, when compared to the one true and living God. Infinitesimally small, that's right. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to consume it. I mean, a baby's stomach is not able to handle solid food. Neither are Christians as they become, when they come into the faith, in the faith in Christ. The period is extremely important to the believer. That period of time, distorted growth, can plague the believer for a lifetime. As Paul continued, but even now, you are not yet able. I mean, as the church is growing up, it's got all these gifts, it's got all these uh, knowledge and all this wisdom and all of, these, all of this stuff going on. And he's talking to them like, even now, you're not able to, to handle strong food. For you're still fleshly. It's interchangeable. Baby, fleshly. Spiritual, you know, humble. Proud, all of these, these factors work together. 
And what was the proof of Paul's statement? I mean, he's making a statement here. Is it true? And he states why. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, and it's based in pride, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like ordinary people? This planet is filled with sinful people, and thus it is a war zone. A poor representation of the church of Christ is strife. And everywhere we look in the church, I mean, if we would be honest, there is strife. Conservatives and liberals, Baptists, Pentecostals, gifts, no gifts, Arminian theology and Calvinists, on and on the story goes, dozens and dozens of conflicts, arguments, who's better than, who knows better, and, and, and it's all justified because we all have a right to believe as we are led, or, or so they say, or so we say. However, God is not confused, neither is he divided. Who we, we should not place the blame of our carnality and pride upon God. We should place it where it belongs. Paul said it this way in verse 4. For when one person says, I'm a, with Paul, and another, I'm with Apollos, are you not yet ordinary people? Taking pride in the people we follow is our undoing. Paul, on the other hand, explains just what these people should mean to us. Verse 5. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants. Servants. End quote. They are not God. So why refer to them as though they were? Oh, I, some are going to say, you know, I don't, I don't do that. I mean, I, I understand who they are. Okay. To which I say, are you in perfect harmony with everyone in the church universal? If it's no, are you putting all the blame on everybody else? Or could it be possible that you're wrong in some places? I mean, are we really working together, those of us who are true believers, to be in harmony with everybody else? That's never going to happen. I understand. I've gone through the arguments for years. The question is, are we willing to change when the error is found? Are we looking for the error? If, if we were really looking for the error, I mean, is God hiding it from us? What, what, what's the problem? See, the problem is sin. We don't want to admit that, but it is. All of this division is going on in the church, and there's one reason for it. It's pride and it's sin. Some people I've talked to, many, you know, that's just the way it is. That's the attitude. That's just the way it is. Are you part of the problem or part of the solution? Are we part of the problem or are we part of the solution? Are we working towards working together? I know everyone's not going to hear this message, and I don't know, maybe this message doesn't even go out. It should be going out everywhere. So if this message isn't going out, that we should be working towards being of one mind and one heart together, then we have to look at the leadership first, right? He continued, Paul continued, servants through whom you believed. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, I planted, Apollos warded, but God was causing the growth. Who causes the growth? Why do you ask how many people are in, why do we ask how many people are in our churches? I mean, does that really matter? 
I mean, does that change anything? Where are they coming from? How many are walking in the Spirit might be a better question. If it's asked in humility. Verse 7, Paul says, So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Paul continued, But God who causes the growth. The one who plants and the one who's watered is not anything. Do we, we look at ourselves that way? The average member, you know, he's going to this mega church and there's thousands of people coming and they're singing in worship and the sermon goes out. Wow, that was a great sermon. Okay. Uh, who's really getting the glory? You know, we sing these songs and it's all about worshiping God and worshiping, worshiping, but who's really being worshiped? There's only one person that matters and that is God. Only one. You know, the one, Paul made it clear, neither the one who plants, neither the one who waters is anything. It's like praising the hose through which the water flows. It's the water that gives life. The hose, what's the hose? We're like the hose. No one else matters. Is that how we perceive pastors, leaders, seminary professors, ourselves? Are they nobodies or elevated to someone special? You know, the early church had the apostles, it's true. But the apostles stayed in Jerusalem while the rest were scattered. And they turned up the world upside down. It wasn't 12 men who turned the world upside down. They were, have a special place in history, a special place in the kingdom of God. You know, they're, they're the foundation pillar stones, stones at the New Jerusalem. I'm not denying any of that. That's all with God. That's exactly true. But make no mistake, God builds his church through the masses. Twelve men don't cover the world, even today. It doesn't happen that way. The ground is level at the cross. It is there that we die to who we once were and live unto God as we should as nobodies before the one and only being that is self-existent. No one comes before the self-existent, eternal God who created all things and through whom all things come and continue. The only thing we can take credit, this is very important, the only thing we can take credit for as coming from ourselves and not God is our sin, period. Now, that's at the heart of biblical theology. All good things James said comes from God, and there is no scripture that contradicts that. Nothing. Nowhere. You're not going to find it. Verse 8, now the one who plants and the one who waters are one. That's a fairly big statement. First part of that verse. Now, the one who plants and the one who waters are one. With the word one, we are back to how we were created in Christ in chapter 1, verses 4 to 9, and made a part of the church. You know, where there was nothing bad said, God get the glory for everything, and it was all good. We're going to be blameless before Almighty God. Until we get involved in the flesh as infants, we're one. That's the way we're made in the church. We're placed into the church and one with everybody else. Until we start to think and use our mouth and our brain. And then that, that's, that's all, you know, it's all given what's going to happen. 
If we highly exalt God's word and pay more attention to it than proud leaders who exalt themselves many times without even knowing it, then we can remain one. If we exalt ourselves, if we follow people who exalt themselves, and this is if in this, I'm not playing, throwing any blanket, although it would be well advised for us to stop, take a huge step back and take a look at things. If you believe in the scriptures and they are written and intended by God to be understood, then we won't be divided. It's a, it's a guarantee. Every division, somebody's wrong about something. If not, and with the devil's help, we shall surely be divided. We will be divided if we do not put our emphasis, our weight, our, our faith in the scriptures. Following Paul's statement, which we are in Christ, is this statement according to human responsibility. Quote, but each will receive his own reward according to his own work. So on the one hand, we're placed in Christ. I mean, there's everything is perfect. But each one will receive his own reward. When we stand before God at the beam of seat of Christ, that's that place where the rewards are handed out, we will stand alone and be judged righteously by God. There will be no excuses then. Why? Because we belong to God and we will know in that hour that we are the slaves and he is to be our only master. Paul continues, verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Who, whose building? Whose field? Whose workers? God, God, and God. We have no right to make a church our own. This, that's ludicrous. It does not belong to us. Every time we move into the area of tradition, cultural Christianity, we're taking the reins away from God and, and we're, we're, we're running with it. The church belongs to God in Jesus Christ. It's bought with his blood, not ours. What in the world right do we have to make any changes? And with all the divisions, how could there not be taking charge? If there were no taking charge, we would be one. This is just completely rational and reasonable, these arguments. Paul continues in verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. I'm sorry, in verse 10, Paul said, according to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each person must be careful how he builds on it. So now the question comes down to, how careful are we being? You know, when a person comes to Christ, and we're all babies, we don't know any better, and then you get plugged into something, and that thing that we're getting plugged into is far from perfect. And you know, people are viewed, and I've seen this so much in the church, as you're a troublemaker, if you, if you even raise a question. If this is the way we do it, and if you don't like it, just go down the block. You know, there's not a whole lot of godly humility in that. Maybe this young Christian, this person who's just come to faith, maybe the Holy Spirit is working in this person, and this question is something as mature people that we should take a look at. Maybe, very possibly they're wrong, maybe they don't have a whole picture, but who knows? Maybe God's using this person to affect the immaturity and the pride 
of those of us who should know better. I mean, that's what happened with Peter and Paul. I mean, Peter is the older person. He's the, the bulwark. He's the, the pillar in the church by God. And he is. But the young rabbi, Pharisee, persecutor of the church comes alongside and just, you know, basically rips into him and says, what are you doing? Galatians chapter 1, just read through it. And what does Peter do? He changes. Why? Because God made him a pillar in the church. He gave him a humble heart. He made him see who he was when he denied Christ on the night that Christ was betrayed. And with that humility, which is the standard for leadership in the church in every age, don't miss it, with that kind of a heart that could hear a younger man called in the ministry as he is, the younger man reprove you and go, oh my gosh, I was, re- I was really wrong there. I how many would do that today? Could I go into any church today, and I'm an older man, and I've been around, and I know the scriptures, I've been studying them for 47 years. I haven't begun, you know, to get beyond the surface, hardly. But that being the case, I've been around a long time. How many men could I walk into and ask them about their church, and they would say, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll listen to you. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't think it'd be too many. I'm just taking a guess. Maybe I'm wrong. At least that's been my experience. We are told from Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, quote, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Now, when I looked up that word, uh, the word for awe in Greek is phobos. You know, that sounds like phobia, right? And by definition means panic flight. Panic flight. Fear. The causing of fear. Terror. This is how this word is divine. Another way of looking at its meaning would be to say fleeing because of feeling inadequate. Fleeing because we feel inadequate. It's kind of like Peter. You know, when he's on the boat and he's been fishing all night and he's just exhausted in his self-effort. And Jesus looked at him and said, you know, throw the net on the other side. Lord, I mean, we've been fishing all night. You're a carpenter. I'm a fisherman. I know what I'm doing. But because you're Lord, I'll do it. And he throws it in. It's going to sink the boat. I mean, the fish are just jumping into this net. What does he do? He falls at Jesus' feet. Depart from me for I'm a sinful man. He's humbled. He got it for a second. Didn't stop him from going on and arguing about who's greatest. But you know what? For, for a little bit, he got humbled. The church in, second, in, in Acts chapter 2 When Pentecost starts and God puts his spirit out there in a supernatural way. And this is why I know revival hasn't really taken place in the 20th century. Now going into the 21st century. Because that humility doesn't exist. If if that Pentecost had happened in the 20th century, this kind of humility would have been correcting the church in all kinds of places. There'd be humility in the church. Not the pride that you can... I mean, if you just open your eyes, you see... The the, the early church understood full well under the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and following for some time that our God is, as the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment 
and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And again in 30 and 31, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now he's talking about what the early church was keenly aware of, all of them. The general epistles, James, right through Jude, understanding the plight of Judas and how for three years he walked with them. And they never perceived anything, but he was not ever saved. He went out and hung himself in the end. He was fake and a phony all the way through. And this chapter 10 is written to people in the church so that people, leaders, members, people who are born again, they really have been contrite, they've really repented, they've really believed, would have this awareness of people around them, are they really in the kingdom? I call this person brother. I say I love this brother. Am I concerned if he's in or he's out? I'm just saying, I can't judge anything. I can't judge. Don't, Don't judge. With all the admonitions throughout the Bible to judge, to be discerning, to to walk in the light, to not be an infant, but to be a mature person, with all of that, all we know is don't judge. Yeah, that's demonic. There's no love in that. There's no real concern. There's no discipline. There's no understanding that we're responsible for one another, particularly in this context that I'm talking about in Hebrews chapter 10. For the first century church, it was not fear alone that gave them a sense of awe, but also the grace of God. As in the words of John Newton, amazing grace, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. It was Christ who faced the fear of God in our place and overcoming, after having shed, as it were, great Drops of blood falling to the ground in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, it, for us, it's a matter of we're saved by grace. I, I had nothing to do with it. If it wasn't that God chose to ordain me to eternal life, and I know that might be horrifying for some, there's no way I would have chose. I know that in my soul. I know that I left apart from the grace of God. There's no way I would have chose Christ. It wouldn't happen. Why? Because I'm born in, in Adam. I have this, this obstinance, this hatred for God that the Bible talks about. I'm a slave to sin apart from being set free. So then I can choose Christ. It's grace. It's a gift. That causes fear. Well, what about the rest of my life? I better make it all grace. If I, if I through pride, make it my works, what happens? I just remain an infant. I walk in the flesh. It's all about human effort. It's all, it's, it's all wood, hay, and stubble. I mean, do I really want to stand before God in human form, look into his eyes, and say, you know, everything you did for me, I just threw it in the trash because I was so proud. I mean, you talk about a need for wiping away every tear from our eyes. I'm telling you, that fire that's going to burn at the beam of seat of Christ, it's not meant for our evil. God doesn't work that way towards his children. It's meant for purification. That doesn't mean it will be fun. Discipline, being beat by the rod, which the Bible talks about, is not meant to be fun. It's meant to be disciplinary. We can't go into eternity impure. Every thought, every attitude, every behavior, all of it, every word, it has to 
be purified. We're made perfect when we pass from this life. There's just something that takes place at the Bema seat that goes beyond that. We have to trust it's true because it's in God's word. If it doesn't fit your idea of what's going to take place, spend more time in 1 Corinthians 3 and other places in the Bible. The Bema seat is not about sin. There can be no double payment for sins. The father will never dishonor the work of his son in such a way. Forget that. It's not going to happen. For this reason, Paul concludes this paragraph by saying, if anyone's work which he has built on remains, it will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet only so as through fire. I mean, do, can this be more clear? I don't like this anyone any more than anyone else. Trust me. It, it puts fear in my heart, awe in my heart. It makes me want to flee. I don't want to face Jesus because I know that I'm an imperfect person. But I know that I'm saved by the grace of God. I know he loves me. I know he cares. I know this is for my good. I'm just not looking forward to this. Because I don't know. I'm not, I'm not the judge. I can't see my own heart. I can't see anyone else's heart. I can preach this sermon as though they are the words of God because they are. They're not my words. But I'm just facing it the same way as everybody else with consternation. You know what I'm saying? If anyone's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Awesome. If anyone's work is burned up, pastors, if anyone's listening to this, listen to this. Don't take this lightly. This is about awe. This is about wanting to run away. Do you want to run away? Have you ever wanted to run away? Or are you just taking these things for granted? Granted, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet only through fire. These are words to stop us. They're meant to stop us. God wants his, his church built for his son, the father does, well. The son wants it burnt, built well for the father. And we're going to conclude this message with these words from Paul. Take care that no one deceives himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, important phrase, I mean, there's all kinds of wisdom. There's wisdom that comes from God down from heaven, and there's wisdom that's earthly. It's demonic. It sounds good, though. It always sounds good, particularly to an infant or a fleshly person. A person living on his own intellect or his own emotions. doesn't matter. We are told, take care that no one deceives himself. Now, that's not even being deceived by a leader or preacher you know, or a seminary professor. That not, that's, now it's about self-deception. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, it doesn't mean he's wise in the scriptures. He might deceive himself that it's the scriptures, but in fact it's actually a cultural thing. It's a tradition. It's in this age. It's the way the church that he is in, he follows along and it's not accurate in what some of the things at least they're doing. Maybe many. And what's the instructions from Paul? He must become foolish. 
what? Become foolish so that he may become wise. You have to become a fool in your own eyes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. How do you become rich? Really rich. Rich from God. You have to admit your poverty. You have to admit that you're capable of making the most stupid mistakes. I know I've made many. Changes that have taken place in my life and my thinking and my actions and my attitude are with a lot. I want to say without number. They have a number. God knows the number. To me, it's, it's, it's a lot. For, if you're going to become wise, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in the sight of God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise by their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are useless. 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 You know how much is in the church today that is useless? I mean, I, I'm not going to take the time or at an end, but there is a lot of useless wisdom in the church today. Why can I make that statement? Because there's so much division. I'm going to repeat that. And there's so much division because there's so much pride. We think we're right all the time. How can we be right all the time? I mean, from the time I came to Christ in 1967 until today, I mean, we're shooting now towards 60 years. Not that that means anything. I mean, if it was 1,000 years, even then it wouldn't mean anything. But, you know, after all this time, I mean, yeah, I was wrong there. Oh, I was wrong here. Man, how could I be so stupid? On and on the story goes, I can't believe that people, the way they start is where they end. Like, how can that be? I mean, I know God gives the Holy Spirit, but now you have to contend with sin and with pride and with error. I mean, it's all over the place. I mean, look, all you have to do is read the New Testament and you see that letters are always written in the churches to correct them. And they're coming out of, they're coming out of revival that took place at Pentecost. They haven't gone two, three hundred years with hardly, you know, a flicker. I mean, the last time real revival hit was the Great Awakening. That was in the 1700s. Yeah, there was a second great awakening but, awakening, but that was majorly flawed. And there was good things that came from it. It was not the great awakening. Well, my brothers and sisters, take this word to heart, I pray, that we would take a step back. And if you hear some, you know, anger in my voice, it's, it's not me against another brother or sister in Christ. It's God's word that comes across angry. One time I, I was going to start a Bible study with someone and he was uh, the, the husband of a waitress in a restaurant I was managing. And uh, I went there and we sat down and we talked and he was just so happy for me to be there. And I, I said, look, uh, read James every chapter uh, this week and go through it. Just read it every day. And I only want you to answer one question. And he said, what? And I said, um, uh, I need you to tell me what the attitude of the writer was. And, okay, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Don't look at anything. It doesn't matter anything else. Just tell me that. I come back the next week. I said, did you do it? I said, yep, read it every day. I said, you got the attitude? Yep. Uh, what is it? He said, I don't know, but the writer of this letter is just like really angry about something. <laughs> you, know, you can't read through the book of James and not realize that James is like, ticked off, you know, 
in contemporary words. You know, he, he's, he's angry. Why? He's speaking for God, and God cares about his, his church with a fervor that, that sounds angry, especially when there's a lot of things that are wrong. And believe me, there's a lot of things wrong. And we're not getting angry to hurt people. We, we get angry, as the Bible says, and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. What's that look like? It looks like we, we got to change things. We have to look at ourselves in the mirror. We have to get together as a church. And everything that's wrong, you know what? We've got to change it. And it doesn't happen with a lukewarm, Laodicean, well, you know, that's the way it is. That, that, God hates that. That church, God talks about, Jesus says, I'm going I'm to spit that, I'm going to vomit that church out of my mind. That's, not a, that's a non-church. That's a church that's not a church. It's not saved people in that church. We don't want to be like that. We want to be fervent in spirit, and we want to take matters in our, and not in our hands. We want to give them into God's hands by faith and say, Lord, change this, please, so that we can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the admonitions of your word. They're hard. They're hard for all of us. They set our, our teeth on edge. Because we're, we're facing a God who is a God of love, a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness and kindness and long-suffering. And we, we, we don't, everyone who's a born-again believer does not want to hurt the God, the Christ, the Savior, who saved us from an eternity of wrath. There's no person who is a child of God wants to do that. We get full of ourselves, Lord. We lose track of the truth. We, we, we skew our priorities and what's most important. We, we put our confidence in the wrong place. We trust people and not Almighty God. We don't trust the Son of God as we should. And we confess, Lord, that this is the way we are left to ourselves. Lord, don't leave us to ourselves, but be there. Meet us. where we are because we, we need you in our lives. We recognize that need is a great need, and it is today in all the world. We don't know how close the end is. We don't know when the tribulation period will start. And, Lord, we can't be ready in ourselves. We have to walk in the Spirit. I ask, Lord, that you would be with every hearer, whether lost or saved. Bring them to Christ or bring them to maturity. But Lord, use these scriptures to penetrate their heart, pierce their soul, and divide and conquer the sin within and replace it with a heart for God. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.